Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi minash shaitani rajim. Bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin wa salatu wa salam ala sayyidina wa nabiyyina Abil Qasim Muhammad wa ala alihi tayyibina tahirin la siyama maulana wa sayyidi sahib al-asri wa zaman ruhi wa arwahu al-alamin lahu al-fidah wa ajjala lahu ta'ala farajuhu al-sharif wa lanatu da'imatu ala a'da'ihim wa munkira fada'ilihim al-alan ila qiyami yawmiddin أما بعد رب إشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلل أقدة من لساني يفقه كولي. Continuing on in our review of chapter number fifty-seven, Surah Al-Hadid. This evening we're going through our second session of the review of the chapter of the iron, as it is known. And let us just jump directly into the commentary for this evening. There's a lot to cover. We want to just try and go over two of the verses, though, verse number two and number three. Uh, if you recall from our previous session, we went over the introduction, the history of Revelation, some of the merits of the recitation of this beautiful chapter of the Qur'an. We also touched upon the hadith from the fourth Imam, Imam Zainul Abidin, peace be upon him, which were, in which he, he conveyed that Allah revealed two particular chapters, Surah Al-Ikhlas and the initial verses of Surah Al-Hadid for those people who would come at the, in the latter days in Akhir zaman and that these would give those individuals the greatest level of understanding of Allah. And that as he said that if you seek to go deeper to understand Allah, more than what is within these two passages of Surah Al-Ikhlas and these verses, he says that you would be destroyed or you would be annihilated. So we continue this evening with verse number 2 and verse number 3 of Surah Al-Hadid. And as we said that the overall theme of this chapter is about the institutionalization the um, the institutionalization of the charity in Islam how Allah has uh, put this process in, in place in religion of giving to others not only financial giving but in our time and our abilities and our efforts and within the main theme there are also seven subtopics that we will be reviewing and the first is, as we look at it tonight, which are the attributes of Allah, who is known as Rabbul Alameen. So these are, again, 20 of the sifat, 20 of the qualities, the characteristics which Allah has given to us in this chapter of the Qur'an. Now, I just want to do a brief um, rewind from what we mentioned yesterday. And that was about these Musabbahat chapters. As we said that there were seven chapters of the Qur'an, actually, known as, as the Musabbihat, those that begin with the glorification of Allah. Uh, we mentioned five of them, but we forgot to mention the other two. And there is a difference of opinion actually amongst our scholars of whether these Musabbihat are five or are they seven chapters of the Qur'an. As, you, as you'll recall the hadith from Rasulullah that we mentioned yesterday that, if you re, that the recommendation was to recite these before you go to bed every night. So if we take that hadith and we take the opinion of the majority opinion that it is five chapters. Again, Surah Al-Hadid, chapter 57, which begins with Sabbaha, the past tense verb to glorify Allah. Chapter 59, Surah Al-Hashr, which is again is Sabbaha, the past tense verb. And Surah Al-Saf, chapter 61, which is also the same uh, way that it starts with Sabbaha. Then you have two chapters, Surah Al-Jummah, chapter 62, and Surah Al-Tagabun, chapter 64, which begin with the present or future tense verb, Yusabbihu. So, 
scholars deem these to be the musabbahat chapters, those that are recommended to be recited, those which begin with the glorification of Allah. Now, as I said, the other scholars, the commentators of the Quran, they have a different opinion. And they say, well, no, there are two other chapters that also begin with a derivative of the tasbih of Allah. One is Surah Al-Isra, chapter Bani Israel, chapter number 17, which begins with Subhanalladhi, as we know, Subhanalladhi asra bi abdihi layl min al-masjid al-haram ila al-masjid al-aqsa. But because it uses the verbal noun, Subhan, so scholars have kept it in a separate category. And the, the, the seventh chapter is Surah Al-A'la, Sabbihismi Rabbikal A'la, chapter number 87. Because it begins with the Amr, the command form, the imperative form of the present tense verb, because of that, some scholars have deemed it not to be of the Musabbihat, although it does begin with that root. But again, because it's not the past or present tense, because it is a command form, and because chapter 17 was the verbal noun, some scholars don't categorize them in the same way. So we just wanted to make note of that for the believers because we only mentioned five of the chapters yesterday. Now, before I go into the two verses for today, I just want to really stress upon this point, which is that we really, whenever we read anything of the Quran, whether it be Surah Al-Hadid as we're going through tonight, or any other chapter of the Quran, it becomes really an important mind lesson for us, a reminder for us, that we remember who these verses were initially coming down to. And that is, in the case of this chapter, it was the Muslims in Medina, keeping in mind that 13 years they had lived in Mecca under persecution, uh, limited ability to move, to function, to even deal in, in everyday society. And it was then after 13 years of hard life, of persecution, of subjugation, of having to make an initial hijrah to Ethiopia, present-day Ethiopia, what is called Al-Habash, that they finally leave uh, Mecca, they go to Medina, and now they have a breath of fresh air. They can uh, begin to worship Allah in freedoms right, that they didn't have in Mecca so much. So keep that in mind that when we read these verses, we, when we read these verses, rather, that Allah is speaking first and foremost primarily to the early Muslims. Now, again, there were whoever was leaving Mecca to Medina, that initial number. And then as Islam grew in the city of Medina, you have people who are coming into Islam, maybe one day old Muslims, five days old, a year, two years, maybe three years at maximum when this verse and these verses rather came down to the Prophet. So you have to keep that in mind because, you know, when you look at the way Allah is describing himself in these with these 20 characteristics that we'll go through, it may seem strange to you that, well, these are coming, this is coming down in Medina. They're already Muslims. They've already been Islam, you know, Muslims for many years, uh, a good number of them. Why would Allah be having to stress upon Tawheed, upon his qualities, upon his characteristics? And obviously, we have to realize that, again, the Muslims were still growing in Medina. Many were converting to Islam. They still needed guidance. And also, just generally speaking, they all, we all need guidance. We all need those reminders about Allah's qualities, about who Allah is, about the power and authority which Allah has. And so that's why I say that we, you and I, also need to reflect on these verses in our challenging times right? and how they relate to us and our situation today. And next year when we read these same verses, our situation will hopefully have changed. 
We should reread them and re-reflect on them in our in that and that era and that time. And so in that way we get to really understand and how and relate to how the Quran is relevant in our daily lives as we move on and we progress towards our eventual end in this life. So coming to verse number two for tonight, Allah says, after Audhu Billahi Minash Shaitani Rajim Bismillahi Rahmani Rahim, Lahu Mulkus Samawati Wal Arth, Yuhi wa Yumit, Wahu Ala Kulli Shayin Qadir. To him, meaning to Allah, belongs a sovereignty of the heavens, of the skies, and the earth. He gives life and he causes to die. He has full and he has full power over everything. So there are a lot of things in this verse that I want to touch upon. I'm just going to we're going to limit it to three for this particular verse, um, and these are obviously the three fundamental discussions. But obviously, um, you know, as with all of the verses of the Quran, you know, there is so much more that can be said that our commentators have written that we can sit and reflect upon, that we can read within the hadith. But we obviously just want to give a taste of what these verses mean and how we can again understand them better. Now, one thing to keep in mind as I go on to my next, uh, into the next part, which is to actually look at this verse, is that this description that we're about to go through of Allah has not been seen in any other verse of the Quran. So if you go online, for example, and you look at some of the books of the Quran online where you can search for key words in the Quran, you won't find al-awwalu wal-akhiru wal-zahiru wal-batin anywhere else in the Quran other than this verse. The way that Allah has chosen to describe himself in this particular passage, and especially in this verse, verse number two, according to the commentators of the Quran, such as Ayatollah Nasr Makarim Shirazi and Tafsir Namuna, which is also available, uh, available in Arabic online and also available in Urdu, that Allah has never described himself in this particular way anywhere else in the Quran. So obviously that's why we said even yesterday that in order for us to really appreciate Allah, to really delve into Tawheed, into monotheism, and what it means to have a God-centric life with Allah as our focal, that we need to understand this particular chapter in, in particular. Obviously all the Quran we should understand, but this one in particular, these initial six ayat, to truly get a better grasp on Allah. So with that said, there are three concepts I want to try and explain this evening. <clears throat> The first one is where Allah says, لَهُ مُلْكُ السَّمَاوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ That relates to the ownership of Allah, the Malikiya as they call it. Now what we have to understand is that the ownership of Allah, when I say Allah owns the universe, Allah owns the heavens, the skies, the earth, that ownership is a real ownership as scholars talk about it. It's not like your and my ownership which is relative. You know, I say that this is my hand. But what do I mean by my hand? I don't own this hand. I didn't create this hand. It was given to me by somebody, by creator, by Allah. So I don't own it in the sense that Allah, for example, owns me. No, it's, uh, it's in my possession. I have a right to use it in the way that Allah expects me to use this hand. But I don't have a right to, for example, use this hand to kill somebody. Because it's not my property to do that with that. 
I own this hand in the sense it's mine for usage, but I can't, for example, use it to hold a bottle of alcohol and drink it because this hand isn't my property. I'm only allowed to use it for what I have been given it for. I have, for example, my phone. Now, I say this is my phone because I paid for it. I bought this phone. But this ownership is temporary. When I die, it goes to my inheritors or it'll be thrown away to be recycled because it'll have no value at the end of the day. But when we say Allah, the Malikiyah, the ownership of Allah, what the scholars say and how they define it is they say that He, compass, he encompasses everything and everything in existence is within the domain of His power and under His will and under the command of Allah. And so whatever he wants to be done in the world will happen. Because if he tells the sun to rise, or as, as we see it from earth, or if he says for the planets to rotate, well, this is because he owns that. He has absolute control over it. And that control, that ownership doesn't transfer. Right? Again, when, you, when a person dies, their wealth transfers to somebody else. The possession, the ownership goes from me to my inheritors, to, you know, when they pass, their inheritors. But Allah isn't like that. There is no way to inherit from Allah. His ownership doesn't transfer. It's not based on some formal agreement, a contract. It's not legislational, right? Today, you go buy a car and you sign the paperwork at the dealership and they give it to you and they say, congratulations, this is your, your new car. That's been legislated in the system that we live in, that a contract is a binding agreement. So, the rules have laid down ownership. But again, Allah's ownership, is not like our ownership, which is temporal. It transfers over and it's limited in the scope of what we can do with it. The second level is the tadbir, the, the level of planning that Allah does. Now, there's a, obviously a very deep discussion here. And I know we don't have time to go into it in this session. But there's a discussion between planning that Allah does when I say he, is the, he does the tadbir, he does the planning of the world, and predestination, right? What, how do we understand this? How do we understand predestination and free will? This has been a, a, a challenge for you know, uh, theologians, for the philosophers, and for the layman to understand of how much free will do you and I have? How much predestination is there in place? How much does Allah control us, so to speak? And how much free will do we have? Obviously, it's a very vast discussion. Um, and I don't really want to go into that in this session. Maybe later on we may look at it. Or if we have a Q&A session, um, maybe you know, once every month or so or near to the end of our discussion, we can entertain questions and discuss these issues at length. So definitely, if you have a concern or you're wondering what does this mean, Make a note of it, and we can discuss it at a later day. But Allah is the planner. He says that, you know, that he has, His is the domain of the heavens and the earth. He gives life. He gives death. So He plans everything out. He plans the, the entire existence. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you and I don't have a say. Right? That's why we have du'as. Because as the hadith says that nothing can change the fate, the predestination, like the dua, like the supplication can change. So we also have a role to play within the mechanics of what happens to us. The third and the final point that I just want to touch upon 
is the fact that um, Allah is also not only the owner, the planner, but He is the one who implements it, the tasarruf as they call it. And when we say the tasarruf, when we say that life and death, and as Allah used in this verse, He uses the present tense verb, yuhi wa yumit, meaning it's a continuous action that Allah is continuously giving life, People are continuously being born. People are continuously dying. It is a cycle that happens in this world. But one of the things we have to realize, brothers and sisters, is that when Allah says that He plans and He implements, especially when I talk about life and death, we sometimes wonder to ourselves, you know, or we sometimes get upset maybe, God forbid. We say, well, why did this happen to me? Why did my loved one die at this age? Why did this happen? And we have to get to a realization of Allah and a level of conviction in Allah through understanding pure Tawheed that He does what He does because He created us. We have no right to ask Allah, why did you do this? Why did you, for example, my son or my daughter was 18 and they died in an accident? Why God? Why Allah? Why did you take away this loved one from me? We don't have a right to ask that because Allah, He owns all of this. Right? He gives life and He takes life as well. He gives death to some people. And He has power over everything. Right? When you give somebody something, then you can't ask them why they did what they did with it. You give somebody, for example, $10. You can't ask them why they bought a particular food or a particular item with that money because now it's not yours to ask. You've given it to someone. So Allah gave us life. We can't ask Him now what, you know, uh, why you're taking it away from me. This is His prerogative. It's His right to do as He wills. It's not as, you know, in other examples that we might see in our lives. Because again, not only did He give us the life, but He still owns us. Right? You give away something, but then you cease ownership of it at that level. But with Allah, He doesn't cease ownership. He continues to own us to manage the affairs, to do all the planning, and then obviously the implementation, Allah also steps in and also He maintains that level in His authority that He has. Verse number three, and we will end with this in a few slides, is where Allah says, akhiru." Again, as scholars mention that this is not seen in other verses of the Qur'an where Allah describes Himself in this method. It's not seen anywhere else. There are other ayat where Allah describes Himself, where Allah talks about His uh, sifat, His qualities, His characteristics, but not in the way that we see happening in this passage uh, in Surah Al-Hadid. So He says that He is the first, Al-Awwal, and He is the last. He is the Akhir. He is the Zahir. He is the all outward. And He is the Batin. He is the all inward. And He has full knowledge over everything. Now, there's obviously uh, four things Allah mentions here that we want to try and better understand this evening. The first two are the Al-Awwalu Wal-Akhiru. The first and the last. And again, this is a very lengthy discussion and you know, we obviously don't want to um, 
we obviously want to understand the, the verse as much as we can, but much of the discussion would have to be done outside of this um, series because it would actually, you know, really take weeks or months to delve into. But So we will give some sources at the end that uh, you can refer to for further details on this topic. But when Allah talks, and this is how our scholars and commentators of the Quran have described this, they say that when Allah talks about him being al-awwalu wal-akhiru, they use the term wajibul wujud, which is the, nece the necessary existence. It's basically that first cause, you know, that there are creations which have, there is one which has to exist, which is Allah, and everything else in existence, really, it doesn't make a difference whether they exist or they do not exist, right? They, they don't have to be there. But Allah has to be there. Allah has been there from the beginning. He continues to be there. When everything else that is in existence eventually perishes at the end, then Allah will continue to exist. When all humanity is gone, when the angels are even put to death, when the jinns are all killed, when the animals are gone, when the plants are all removed off of the earth and all of the existence ceases to exist anymore, Allah will still exist at that point in time. One of the beautiful things that we should reflect upon when Allah says that is that as Muslims we should also realize that we should remember Allah at the start of our day as He is Al-Awwal and Al-Akhir that we should begin our day with the remembrance of Allah and we should end our day with the remembrance of Allah. And that's why we also see within the Quran and the, the, the traditions of the Ahlul Bayt the various supplications that they've told us that when you wake up, certain supplications to read when you go to bed, for example, be in a state of wudu, for example, brush the teeth, for example, recite the tasbih of Lady Zahra salam, recite these five chapters of the Quran and other recommendations which are available in the books of supplications, that we continuously remember Allah at the two ends of the day, and obviously in between, whenever we're at work or we're at school, we're commuting, we're walking, we continuously remember Allah. And let me just mention this as a side note, that when the hadith tell us that, you know, do the dhikr of Allah, remember Allah, the imams of the Ahlul Bayt, peace be upon them, were clear that they, they said, we don't mean that you, for example, take the prayer beads and start counting Allah 34, Allahu Akbar, and Alhamdulillah, and Subhanallah, and MashaAllah. That's a form of remembrance. But a higher level, what the Imams of Ahlul Bayt would tell us to what it means to do the dhikr of Allah or the tasbih, the, the glorification, the sanctification of Allah, is that anytime you are put face to face with the opportunity to sin, to break the rules of Allah, to disregard Allah's commandments, that you remember Allah at that point and you keep away from that action. That's really the pinnacle of the dhikr of Allah, is when you get to a stage where you have an opportunity to commit a sin and you don't because you, your mind remembers Allah. Again, because we should, when we're always in that constant state of remembrance, we won't forget Allah. You know, we won't be like those who have forgotten Allah. So as Allah says, in the Qur'an, that Allah made them forget themselves. No, because we're always remembering our Creator, it won't be difficult when we're put in, a, in an opportunity to sin. As the Qur'an says, that when we're believers are in that situation, that they remember Allah. 
and they keep away from those sins. Allah then says he's a dhahir. A dhahir, as the late Tabrisi states in his tafsir of the Quran, Majma al Bayan, he says that Allah is a dhahir, that is, he's omnipotent. Omnipotent we, we define as having unlimited power, able to do anything. So a dhahir, don't think about dhahir as, you know, you can see him, because obviously we can't see Allah. He's not visible, he's not a physical body. So when we have dhahir and batin, the apparent and the hidden, or the all outward and the all inward, we have to realize there's a, def a different definition. So in Majma al-Bayani, he says that al-Zahir is that he is omnipotent, he has unlimited power, able to do anything he wants. And that unlimited power, omnipotence, is over everything in existence. And he is all great in all aspects, in relation to everything. And everything in existence is actually secondary in relation to him. So al-Zahiru is not that Allah is outwardly seen, we don't see Allah. But we do recognize Allah, as Amir al-Mu'mineen would say, through the eyes of the heart. We don't see Allah, but we see the ayat of Allah, the signs of Allah, the greatness of Allah, the greatness in the creation that Allah has put, in the, that He's mentioned within the Qur'an and many of the ayat. We see the signs, and those get us to Allah. Just like when you drive on the highway, and maybe you're going to... I don't know, you're going to Whistler, let's say, to the mountains, to the ski resort. And you'll get onto the highway and you'll see signs guiding you how to get there. Tell you to turn this way, your GPS will say, take a left, take a right, 50 kilometers, 40 kilometers away. You'll follow the signs to get to your destination. So similarly, we don't see Allah, but we see his signs. We see his effects in humanity, in, our, in, in ourselves, in the world around us. And we use those to get to Allah, to reach our Creator. So He is Al-Zahiru, the All-Outward. He's also Al-Batin. And it's interesting if you if you if you're thinking if you're reflecting on these words that how the scholars like the commentators of the Quran they mention how these terms are opposites, right? Al-Awwal wal-Akhir, the first and the last. Yuhi wa yumit, he gives life, he takes, he gives death, two opposites. First and last, two are, are two opposites. Life and death, two opposites. Al-Zahiru wal-Batanu, two what we may think of as opposites. And Allah is describing himself as being one and the other. And usually, you know, for you and I, these wouldn't make sense. If you walk into a room, you could say you're the first to come in the room. But very rarely could you say that you're the first and the last, unless nobody else came in. But in most cases, you're the first, or you're the fifth, or you're the last. But Allah says He's first and last, awwal wal akhir. So al-batin, to go back to al-batin, and we'll conclude in the next few minutes, al-batin is that Allah is hidden from the senses. He's hidden, <coughs> He's hidden from our eyes and our thoughts. Right? And that's why even the hadith tell us that when you try to think about Allah, you'll get to a point where you can't think any further and stop. Right? You think about yourself, well, where did I come from? My mother and father. Where did my parents come from? My grandparents. Where did they come from? From their parents, and so on and so forth. But if you think about Allah like that, where did Allah come from? You know, again, you will, you'll be, it's not possible, and you'll end up asking yourself and having more questions than having true faith. And so, 
Allah is hidden from our eyes and even our thoughts. We can only understand Allah to the extent that He has allowed us to know Him. And again, that is through such verses of the Qur'an. He's incomprehensible with the senses. We can't, you know, we, we don't hear Him, we don't see Him, we can't touch Him, we can't uh, smell Him. Our senses are basically useless in trying to understand Allah. But again, we refer to the signs of Allah to better understand Allah. And the other aspect of being al-batin, this inward of Allah, is that he has complete awareness over all hidden issues, such as our intentions. So when you and I do an action, like when we pray our, our, our salat, it's not only the physical action that Allah is witnessing, the words that we're saying he's hearing, it's also our intention, why we are praying. Are we praying to show off to the people? Are we praying to show off to family? Are we doing good actions like charity to be known in society? Allah knows that because of the fact he's al-batin, he has also access to our inner, our intentions, why we do certain actions. This is a very beautiful sermon. We'll end in the next few moments with this uh, last piece of uh, understanding of Allah. And this is actually the very first sermon that Sayyid Radhi has mentioned in Nahjul Balagha. And I'm sure many of you have heard this many times, the Mawlanas, the scholars who uh, ascend the member, the pulpit, and give majalis, give lectures, they'll start with this sermon. Well, they'll say, Alhamdulillah, alladhi la yablagu midhatahu al-qailun, wa la yuhsi na'ama'ahu al-adun, wa la yu'addi haqqahu al-mujtahidun. And they will go on. So I wanted to share this with us tonight as a closing reminder of how the Ahlul Bayt describe Allah. And how as we even see in the famous khutbah of Sayyidah Zahra the khutbah of Fadak that I'm sure many of us are acquainted with where she tells us that when you have the Ahlul Bayt as your guides then you will keep away from, you will, you'll be kept away from deviation. Because when you follow the Ahlul Bayt's description of Allah you'll realize that they don't personify Allah, that say that He has a foot, that He you know, will wiggle in the fire of hell, or that He'll lift His clothing and show His shin, or that Allah comes down to earth on a donkey, or that Allah has physical human characteristics that some Muslims claim Allah has. Just look at how Imam Ali, peace be upon him, describes Allah, and we'll end with this. He says, All praise is due to Allah whose worth cannot be described by speakers. You and I, the qailun, those who talk, who give lectures, you and I can never actually describe Allah. His worth can never be described by people who try to describe. His bounties that He gives cannot be counted by anybody who tries to calculate them. The greatest of supercomputers today cannot calculate the bounties of Allah. It's impossible and whose claim to obedience cannot be satisfied by those who attempt to do so. Again, a beautiful way that the Imam is describing this oneness of Allah. Allah, he says, is the one whom the height of intellectual courage cannot appreciate. You and I could study a lifetime of Tawheed and, and oneness of Allah and the qualities, and we would never appreciate the true depth of, you know, of what Allah is, if I can use that term. And the diving of understanding cannot reach. He for, whom no, he for whose description no limit has been laid down. No eulogy exists. 
No time is ordained and no duration is fixed. He brought forth creation through his omnipotence, dispersed winds through his compassion, and made firm the, shirk, the, the shaking earth with rocks. Again, the sermon goes on. If you have time, I would really advise you and myself to read this sermon of Imam Ali alayhi salam and see the depth of vision that he had when he described Allah. And really, when you read this, and let me end with this last point, when you read this sermon, you'll realize that when Imam Ali was asked by that man, some hadith reports it was a Jewish man who came to the Imam and said that, have you ever seen your Lord? The Imam said to him, um, Woe be to you, Wayhak! Do you think I worship a Lord I cannot see? And the man, the Jewish man, very politely asked Amir al-Mu'mineen, well, how do you see your Lord? And he says that the eyes of the face cannot see him, but the heart with the haqaiqul iman, the, true, the truths of iman can see Allah. When, a, when the imam can say that statement, and then you read this description of Allah, you understand how he witnessed Allah, how he witnessed the greatness of Allah, he didn't see Allah because nobody can see Allah with the eyes of the face. He used the heart and he recognized Allah through that. And that's what we have to get to, brothers and sisters, is to recognize Allah through the eyes of the heart. And, and we conclude with this, وَهُوَ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ عَلِيمٍ That he has full knowledge over everything. The outcome of Allah being awwal وَآخِر The outcome of Allah being ظاهر and باطن is that he knows everything because you and I cannot hide. You can't, for example, you can, for example, erase your browser history so your parents don't see it, or your spouse doesn't see it, or your workplace doesn't see what you're wa watching online or doing on the internet. But Allah is knower. Allah knows what we do, brothers and sisters. He knows everything from the very first moment we were brought into this world and pre-existence until we leave this world and we're long turned into dust. And so he has full knowledge over everything. We cannot hide. We cannot run away from him. We have to fess up and recognize the fact that he has knowledge over everything. I'll conclude with this uh, just reminder that if you really want to study more about Tawheed, that this book is a great introduction, theological instructions from a contemporary scholar, Ayatollah Muhammad Taki Misba Yazdi. Uh, the link, the short URL is, uh, URL is online. We'll put it in the description of the video below. Uh, it's a very heavy book to read. It's very deep. It may require a teacher for certain areas. But it's probably one of the best books in English that we have on aqaid, on theology, on recognizing Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inshallah, we'll continue next week and review the uh, next portion of verses of Surah Al-Hadid. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.